Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Super awesome. And you're like, we rolled out of bed for this this morning. Not only did you roll out of bed for this this morning, but I'm going to recommend that if you missed last week that you go back and listen to that talk. If you go to eastlaketricities.com slash talk, or we have an app, you can get on demand and do that. I would recommend that you go back and kind of check it out because uh, it kind of sets the stage for the conversation that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks. Um, and here's the deal, though. Don't listen to it on a Friday because it's kind of a downer going to the weekend, right? Listen to it on like a Monday, right? Then you're like, that's it's, a, it's very Monday appropriate is what the is what that talk is and this series is. And I know it feels so weird doing this in the middle of summer where it's like life and it's like, I've never felt more fully alive and, and we're capturing all the moments and letting the kids stay up later than they should and do all that kind of stuff. And then you show up on Sunday and you're like, death, right? And you're like, what is this? Uh, there is no good time to talk about, we said that last week. Um, and, uh, and, and yet I think this is really critically important for us and, and I'll get to why I feel like this is a spot that we needed to talk about this and, and do this in a minute. But um, as I've mentioned before, I, in my own personal sort of uh, devotion piece uh, at home, um, my, in my reading plan, I've been reading through some of the Old Testament and um, using this like translation thing by a guy named Robert Alter. It's a really big, thick, awesome tons of information in it. And I've been reading through 2 Samuel, and this is the season, that's like the, the session we're going, it's like a, you know, from the beginning, Genesis through uh, Revelation is kind of the, well, I guess it's Old Testament, so uh, different, but Malachi, but um, it's, uh, I'm in 2 Samuel right now, and it's in 2 Samuel, there's stories about David, who, uh, King David, pretty famous, even if you didn't grow up religious, you're probably familiar with the biblical David, right? Um, or the person, David Goliath, that same, same guy who became king of Israel at that time, who faced the, who faced death, not him personally, but people that he loved, who watched them die and how he responded to the death of a few people in his life. And in the same book, he responds very, very different ways. Um, in the very first one that he encounters that, uh, that I can remember in this way, um, he watches or hears and gets news of his arch enemy, Saul, who was the current king at the time. And Saul was going to be the next king, but they weren't related. And that was kind of a big deal, like, you know, usurping the throne sort of thing. Um, but, and, and, and Saul had a son named, uh, named Jonathan, who was his best friend. And he got news that in this battle that Saul and Jonathan had both died. And his response to their death was to write a poem, write like this, like this funeral elegy, right? Uh, in, in second, in it's the very first chapter of, of Samuel 1. Here's what it says in verse 17. Saint David took up this lament concerning Saul and his, own, uh, and his son, Jonathan. A lament is a, a, a poem, a, a song of sadness. I'm lamenting over the loss of something. Um, and in spite of the fact that Saul tried to kill him multiple times, he had this like respect for the authority of the king of Israel, the anointed one of God, whatever. And so he sat and he, and he writes a, song, a poem about it. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar, which is a book that we don't really have, didn't survive antiquity. But a gazelle is slain in your heights, uh, Israel. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. So even, even though everybody's like, you should be happy. Now there's no barrier between you becoming king. He's still like, 
works through and processes through death through the writing of a song. Maybe that's a strategy that's been for you, right? Like something significant has happened and you, you're an artistic person, you're an Enneagram four and you begin to write these things out. Here's, here's a picture, here's a drawing, here's a poem, something artistic. David responds to death in that way. And then later on in the story, uh, there's the story of him and Bathsheba and, and him cheating on uh, this other man's wife and then getting the man killed. It works for him, it's a crazy story. You should you know read, uh, the Bible is not PG, you guys, just so you know, it's not PG at all. Um, and, uh, and then he brings her into his home and they have a child together. And, uh, and then he gets confronted by one of the prophets that says, you've done this awful thing. And, and uh, as a result, your firstborn child is, is going to die. And David responds with like, I'm, he, like, he says he rips his clothes. He, he goes into like this period of fasting and mourning and just like, no, I don't want this to happen. And then he gets news that the child is dead. So again, news of mortality, the awareness of mortality. Uh, and he dresses himself up. He goes and has, has a meal and, and shares a meal. And his servants are like, when the kid was sick, you were like in dire straits. And now that this child has passed, we figured this would be, take that level of mourning and times it by two. And yet you're responding completely differently. And here's his response to them in verse 22 of chapter 12. And he answered, when the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Here's what he's saying in that phrase. He's, he's talking like almost philosophically about, the mor- about mortality in that moment. So at one point he writes a poem and now he's going, where this child has gone, I can't go to him, but eventually I, I, or he can't come back to me, but eventually I'll go to him. Almost talking about like this life is about death and life has these things and these are all seasons that we go through and eventually we all end up as dirt anyways, right? That's essentially what David is saying. So he's gone from an artistic response to a more logical philosophical response. And then what happens later on in the story, because this is he lives a crazy life, you guys. Um, he, another one of his sons grows up and, and eventually wants to take over the throne and uh, eventually kicks his dad out in sort of a, this, like this coup sort of thing. And, and the son Absalom uh, is, 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 on, is, is, is making his way into the city and, and David's right-hand man go, we're gonna die, he's gonna kill us. Like he's over, he's got too many people following him. We need to escape from the city. So he escapes from the city and eventually, one of his commanders decides, you know what, I'm going to take out Absalom and then, and then, and then the King David will like, you know, I'll be his best and I'll be the brightest and whatever. And I'll get all kinds of special preferential treatment. Cause I took out the son that, that was going to try and take him out and kill him and, and, and all this stuff. And so Joab kills, uh, kills Absalom. And then the news gets back to David and his response, the King asked the Cushite in verse 32 of 18, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite responded on this other person, may the enemies of my Lord, the King and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. May anybody who wants to do you harm end up like he did. In other words, he, ki- he was killed and in a, in a gruesome sort of fashion. And, and may anybody who tries to step on your toes end up like this person did. The king was shaken. He went to the, up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. The son who tried to kill you and like slept with all of your wives and like took over your job and all this kind of stuff. And you're supposed to, I thought I was doing you a favor. This Joab's like, I thought I was doing you a favor. And now you do this, like, this is so confusing. What are you talking about? And this one, he goes into this like depth of emotions and he, he can't even control himself. He's like, he, he's, it says he walks around and wanders around his courtyard, just crying out, oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, like, like you're not, you're not even thinking straight. Do you understand that he was trying to kill you? 
So, so his responses to death and the mortality of life is all over the place. It's a roller coaster. It's, it's one of those things where in, in the same way for us, we don't really know how we are going to handle the death of someone that we love until it actually happens. We have plans in place and we respond in different ways, but like, it's kind of like that whole Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan on how to fight until they get punched in the face and you don't really know. So we don't, even though we are aware that we are all going to die at some point, we are aware of our mortality. The point of week one was we find ourselves strangers to it. And it doesn't matter how often you've gone through it because it kind of changes each time. As, each, as this man lost somebody that he loved, his response is different. It wasn't the same. It was all over the place and it didn't make any sense. And when you've lost somebody, at sometimes you're like, you know, I, I, can't, I don't know how to process this. And this was a, a, not a joyful experience, but they lived a life well lived and it was, we can celebrate this life. And then other times it just completely wrecks you. And you're like, I, I'm just an absolute mess. I can't even like... I'm like not functioning well in this way. I, I, I don't think this is healthy. I, I don't even know where I'm at. And that, this is the broad spectrum of it. And, and the, the point of it, all of it is, is this thing with death, we all know that we're going to die and that everybody you know is going to die at some point. Which again, this is like, Brent, why are we, it is freaking July, bro. Like I'm leaving from here and gonna go watch boat races and buy my kids ice cream and snow cones and you should do all of those things. It's great. But... I feel like the church has had and continues to have, and our church is no exception, no exception, a responsibility to remind you of your mortality. And the church has said, um, we need to teach people how to die well so that they can take this gift that is life and learn how to live well. The Catholic Church came up with a term about, for that called ars moriendi, the art of dying. We are gonna teach them the art of dying. And I introduced it last week, I said they used to make, they used to print out these booklets to be like, hey, um, there were so many people dying, we didn't have enough priests to go and deliver last rites to people. And so we're just gonna like uh, produce a material, a small group booklet, a little handbook, and you're gonna give it to anybody and you can go lead someone through the process of dying well through this thing. And then they realized some of our people can't even read in this phrase. And so they came up with these like wood engravings and, and, and pictures to be able to be like, like if they can't read, then at least give them a piece of art and walk them through this. This is the person who's almost dying and then there's gonna be demons who are gonna come with temptations last minute. And you gotta live through this. And you gotta fight through this. And you gotta, we want you to die well. The church has felt the responsibility to teach people how to die well. And, and that's what this series is about. And I know it's July and I know it's not good timing, but this is, this is important. This is, I think, a, a big piece of this. And last week I gave us a, a little bit of a sobering reality check uh, uh, in it in talking about how in today's medical climate, you are more likely to die gradually than ever before. Um, because I think, and, and we'll get to the spot where, where uh, death is sudden and we're dealing with loss and, and, and we're like, we never even had a chance for closure and, and, and discussions and it was an accident and it was this and it was cancer, it was all that kind of stuff. That is a side piece that we will eventually get to. But the reality is for the most part, right? I'm just dealing with the law of averages on this part. What they say is that in the last two years of your life, you're, you are more likely to be partially or fully dependent on others to help you with your basic life activities. Uh, of those 65 years or older, 10% have the devastating disease of Alzheimer's. And once you get to age 85 or over, that, that number jumps up to just under 50%. Like this is when, as we get older, 
kudos to modern medicine for keeping us alive longer. Now we are dealing with our own issues of mortality and, and we then are in a spot and in a position to even learn so much more how to die well in this. I want to do this phase of my life well. And, and maybe you're like 30, 40, and it's not even on your radar. I, I understand, but you've got family members, you've got things. And, and just the whole thing, it's, it's, it's critically important. We watched, I watched as, um, as some of our best friends had a grandpa who went through um, aphasia, which is the loss of the ability to speak, but it, didn't, it doesn't affect your intelligence. You just can't communicate. And the debilitating process and the debilitating thing and, and how it influenced the relationship. And it was incredibly difficult for all of the family. The wife was like, he understands, he knows that there's just no communication there. And just watching this whole thing kind of play out and being like, man, this is tough. This is tough to walk through. It's tough to plan for. It's tough to think about. It's tough to process. I don't know where I'm at. I'm kind of all over the place. That's, I, I understand. So then what we say is when we gather together on Sundays, we're saying, okay, we're trying to live life and be good human beings, right? What does the way of Jesus sort of, how does that influence or, or inform how we do life? And I think the way of Jesus informs also, additionally, how we learn to die well and in effect, live well in the process. Uh, there's a, uh, an, a book, one of my favorite authors, who's an atheist guy, but fantastic writer, lives in England. Um, his name is Julian Barnes. And he wrote a, a book called Nothing to Be Frightened Of, talking about death through the perspective of somebody who doesn't believe in an afterlife, right? And so processing through some of this uh, stuff. And in it, he says this, uh, I don't believe in God, but I do miss him. Religion used to offer consolation for the travails of life and reward at the end of it for the faithful. But above and beyond these treats, it gave life a sense of context, and therefore seriousness. Somebody who came out of a religion was like, I get it. I understand why people enjoy it. There's a sense of I've got purpose and seriousness and all this kind of stuff. Did it make people behave better? Sometimes, sometimes not. Believers and unbelievers have been equally ingenuous and vile in their criminality, but was it true? And then he would say, no. Then why do I miss it so much? If he's come to this conclusion now, I don't think that it's true. Why do I find myself missing it? Why do I want this in me? And here's, or why do I want this to be true for me? Here's what his response was. Because it was a supreme fiction and it is normal to feel bereft on closing a great novel. If you ended a book and thought, I'll never read those characters again, that's so sad. He goes, like this whole idea was when I closed this and I lost this sense of it being real or whatever. Supreme fiction didn't mean it was more fictional than the rest or more false, but that it dealt with my biggest fear. And that is our biggest fear, right? I mean, this is, this is one of those things that cause a great level of seriousness, no matter how much of a joking person you are and how often you throw humor in to deal with, uh, to deal with life and the stresses of life when it comes to death or when somebody says, my mom died this week. Like there's a sense in which probably not the right time to make a joke. You know what I mean? Crack a joke. I'm trying to like walk through the path of, of, serious, uh, of uh, the serious nature of life right now. This is what's true in this way. Now, it's interesting for us, if you call yourself a Christian, there are probably a few things that are associated that would be a response to reading something like Barnes's take on this nothing to be afraid of, even though I am deathly afraid of, uh, of death. Um, most of our, most, if you grew up in church and you, and you hold some vision of a religious afterlife or uh, what happens to us when we die, uh, to be absent with God is to be present with the Lord. These are phrases that we would kind of term and, and use or um, sort, some sort of a picture of a, of, of a rapture or bodies rising, the resurrection of the dead or something like that. Uh, most of that sort of 
thinking comes to us from one specific letter that Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica. It's called First Thessalonians is the name of the book. And probably most of what you believe, if you grew up in church and consider yourself to be Christian or religious, uh, most of what you believe about that sort of a thing comes to us from that. It's a, it was a church who, uh, who existed in, in, in Thessalonica, a city, and they were trying to process through the teachings of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And when he told his disciples, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back to get you, it's gonna be all, all of, you know, it's gonna be great. And we're gonna spend life in, uh, eternally with God or whatever. And so it was, it was a new phase for them. They had, seen, they had seen somebody die, but then not die. And then him saying something about how that sort of inheritance is available for you. And so there was this evolution that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, when you died, you just died. You went down into Sheol. There wasn't a vision of life in the afterlife. There was nothing. It was like, we serve Yahweh God now because he created us, but he owes us nothing in an afterlife. So this idea of, of a heaven or someplace that you go or someplace, that's an all a New Testament evolution based on a church trying to navigate through Jesus' teachings saying, there's something for you after this. And they're watching and they're saying, hey, uh, Paul, as, as an advisor, right? Because that's what Paul served as when he wrote all of these letters to Thessalonica, to Colossae, to Philippi, uh, Philippi or Galatia or whatever, all of these books that make up the New Testament, he's offering advice as an external advisor. And some of them go, hey, um, what's this? When Jesus was here, what we re remember is him talking about something about, you know, death having, losing its sting and there's, there's no power there and there's something beyond it. And yet um, we are finding that some of our people within our church have died since Jesus has gone and, and ascended into heaven. What's it, the future for them? What, 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 should we wait? Are they, is it, did they miss it? Like they're trying to talk through the logistics of this. They're trying to process out, process out Paul, would you work out um, the afterlife for us? And so he begins to take his pen to paper and write some of this out. And he's kind of a little bit all over the place. It's one of his more scattered letters, if you've ever read it, as he's trying to navigate this too, trying to give his best guess for what happens to us when we die. Here's what we know. We saw Jesus die. We saw him resurrected. We saw him speak something about this sort of uh, new kingdom that is arriving is an is in inheritance for you, that we as a Christians identify ourselves somewhere in that. We worship a God who was not succumbed to death. And there was an offer of some of that for us. And he's trying to say, here's what my best guess is on how this plays out. But from the backdrop of things, here's what they would say for sure. We, we, here's what we know. Those who've died are asleep in Christ and will be raised to be with the Lord forever. He's offering assurance for those who lost a loved one who like, you know, what's, what's in it for them? What's in it for me? Will I ever see them again? Paul would say this. Here's my best guess as to what that inheritance from Jesus means. Death is not an end, but it's a transition. That there is a reality be even beyond death. And what we know and that we believe about the future ought to shape how we live in the present. And so in contrast to kind of what we read from Julian Barnes and saying like, uh, I'm in this state of despair because I've, I've got this life and this is all that there is to live and, that, and that, that's fine. The Christian sort of take would be sort of this. And where does this come from? It comes from a letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonica trying to process through what, it, what life looks like after death. And so there's, an, a, there's a, a way in which this is what comes. This is what we believe. This is the, uh, this is the, the, the tagline. This is the blessed 
hope that when we receive communion, uh, we are not only recognizing what happens in the past and what we do with ourselves, but that we anticipate life beyond this life, that this isn't all that there is because Jesus, our hero, beat death and there was some sort of inheritance for us. So death's not the end of transition. There's a reality beyond death that we, uh, and then what we know and believe about the future ought to shape how we live in the present. And Barnes himself would say, who wouldn't wanna believe this? This is good news. This is beauty. This is something that we yearn for. Even if you aren't really religious, you read this and go, I'd like that to be true in the same way that Barnes would say, I, I would like that to be true. And as Christians, we hold on to this thing. We believe this is true because this is what we interpret. This is how we make sense of Jesus' resurrection and why it means something to us. And Barnes would say, or it says this, if it were true, it would be beautiful. And because it was beautiful, it'd be more true. And the more true, the more beautiful and so on. But I just can't pull myself to find it to be true. Is this beautiful and therefore it resonates with us and therefore we think it's true or, or are we working backwards with this? And I, I know him and I come to different conclusions on this and he didn't write this as a defense of atheism and neither will I say that this is such a beautiful answer so therefore it has to be true. That's not what I'm saying either. But if for atheists, life is a random series of events that this is all there is and that's, uh, that is a way to live and I, I understand it. And I think that there are certain merits and certain things that come with that side, sort of a mindset that are, are good. But if for Christians that there's more, then as the, the last piece of this is, if we actually believe this to be true and we hold out a hope for something greater, then this should inevitably affect how we live our life currently. If we believe as Christians, if you hold on, and, and, and again, if I ask this in a general kind of survey as you walked in the door and not even know what we talked about, uh, and if you kind of personally identified as a Christian in probably not these exact words, but you would say, you would probably check a box and be like, yeah, I believe that. And I believe this and I believe this. Does it affect the way that you live? Does it affect the way that you do things? A study published in the Journal of American Medical Association found this. People of religious faith, 95% of them identified as Christian, were three times more likely to choose aggressive medical treatment at the end of their lives, even though they knew that they were dying and that the, threat, uh, the treatments were unlikely to lengthen their lives. Meaning this, mentally I assent to the idea that there is life beyond this life. And I think that that should affect how I live now. And, and this isn't the end. This is, death is a comma, not a period, right? And yet we find ourselves more likely to pursue aggressive treatment that is going to kind of extend this. So we're still fearful of this. In our actions, it doesn't reflect the truth that we kind of assent to in our minds. It goes on, relying upon religion to cope with terminal cancer may contribute to receiving aggressive medical care near death, leading to worse quality of, of death scores in comparison to those who choose uh, or chose less aggressive measures uh, in this way. Meaning when we keep fighting, keep fighting, keep doing this, like it lowers the experience. They have a quality of death, which is kind of a funny, like, what do you do? I measure quality of death experiences for people. It's a weird job. Like, was that on Craigslist? How did you find this? Where did you, what kind of a psycho applies for this job? But somebody did. And I'm glad that they did because I get it. I want, the church has a responsibility to teach you how to die well. And in it, it's like, listen, we believe that death is a common, not a period. And, there, and, and, and so, so therefore, like, 
when it comes to this, how many times have you been, uh, you know, I don't know how many funerals you've been to from people who have lost the battle to cancer. It just something, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, some uh, late in their years sort of thing. And one verse from the Bible that is almost always in the program or referenced, like when people grab a microphone or do this, or uh, I don't know, something like that is comes from second Timothy chapter four, verse seven, where they say, I've fought the good fight and I've finished the race and I've kept the faith. Old Lou, he fought the good fight, didn't he? If your name's Lou, I'm not picking on you. I have no idea. I don't know a Lou, so I'm trying to be really safe in general, not speak ill of you. But, oh, Lou, he fought a good fight. He finished his race. And we're here to, you know, and what does that mean? It, it, of course, means like they tried everything that they could to do to save himself, right? Uh, which we, they, they uh, this is Paul, by the way, writing from prison, knowing his execution is imminent. The fight he's referring to is the length of his in, evangelistic measures of planting churches and preaching the gospel. Like I've given everything I can to all of this. I have a pretty dang good life to look back on and be like, I would never look at my life and say it was wasted. There was so much potential. I just played video games the whole time. He's like, no, no, no. I did everything that I felt called to do. I fought a good fight and done things. And we borrow this phrase and we say they fought the good fight as in they tried every medical option they could do to say, stay alive, right? And that is, it doesn't match up with a dying well perception that life Death is a comma and not a period in this way. Life is equally sacred at its end as at its beginning. Now, I do want to say this. Assigning the value of life at its completion is different than the same assessment as at its beginning. Valuing life for life's sake, which is, I think, the definition of sanctity of life, makes sense when, when this child is young. And, and, and this, this is not a talk for, oh, I have, a, in fact, we have a family in our church, in our small group, who's dealing with a brain cancer right thing right now. And, I, and aggressive medical treatments, we are, we're watching updates. She's ringing a bell. Their grandparents are sitting in the front row. Like we're the first ones to be like, dude, fight this thing, beat this thing. This is, when she's ringing the bell, I'm just like an emotional basket case. Cause I'm like, let's go, let's get her home. Let's get her healthy, all this kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, when, you're, when, when, it's, when it's late in life and, and we're just like, I gotta stay alive, I gotta stay alive, at some point, at what cost? That's the problem. At her cost, there's so much future potential. You're like, fight, 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 do what you gotta do. And, and I'm not here to tell you what age, where's the line? Well, what about me? What are, I'm X years old, are you calling me old? I'm like, I don't know, but I know that there's a line somewhere where you're like, there's, 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 there's a spot in which you go, are you going to wake up to the reality that you do, we live with the blessed hope and that therefore um, it's okay. It's, it's one of those things like you've lived a really good life. Let's celebrate. Let's take this time that you have. And instead of wasting it on IV drips and this and whatever, spending it with the time that you love, having, having closure with some of these family relationships, having conversations about mortality with people that you care about and saying, listen, this is imminently gonna happen. Is there anything that you need to say to me or I need to say to you? Is there anything that you need to hear as my daughter, as my son, before I pass, before I'm no longer here that you wish, oh gosh, I wish my dad would have said something to me. I wish I would have heard, I love you for the very last time or for the first time and forever long or whatever. But no, he was too busy chasing off, doing chemo, taking all these treatments, flying everywhere, doing this, doing this. That. And it was just, we, we never had the closure. I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to die like that. That's not a healthy way to do it. If I have a responsibility as a pastor of a church to teach you how to die well, listen, there's a sanctity at the end of life. In the same way that you would, if we had a conversation, I would say there's a sanctity at the beginning of life as well. And we could talk about, well, I don't need to, I'm not trying to get into politics with that. But what I am trying to say is that same sanctity of life holds true at the end of life as well. 
Life sanctity does not require preservation at all costs when a lifetime is fulfilled. I read a book a while back from Atul Gawande. He's a, uh, a physician who uh, deals with a lot of this stuff and wrote a book called Being Mortal. It was fantastic. And he uh, talks about a story of an elderly patient who's dying of heart disease and under the most optimistic scenario and the best medical care, weeks away from death. I mean, no matter what, just, it's just weeks. You have weeks to live. And I can't imagine delivering or receiving that news. And the whole book is a real downer. So really, don't read that on a Friday, okay? He's a fantastic writer, but it's constantly, every chapter is somebody who's living this or dying this horrific and trying to deal with having people and especially family members recognize the mortality that's going on and the opportunities that they have and, and people who do it good and people do it bad and hopefully you learn to do it well, right? The patient and her husband were Christians. The doctor advised her to go home, handle her affairs, say goodbye to her children, spend time with loved ones, preparing herself spiritually for this. And instead, he said she should request to be transferred to a hospital in a nearby city, begging for a heart transplant, trying to find somebody who will listen to her to say, extend it, extend it, extend it, extend it. And he goes, he remembers writing in his diary and talking to people around the water cooler later going, this dear lady wants to live this way longer? Like I'm telling her she's got weeks, go do what you need to do, find the closure. And you're just trying to extend it in this way. More importantly, her decision to pursue additional medical care made it impossible for her to prepare herself for the inevitable. And he called it naive vitalism, naive vitalism at all costs, whatever it takes. In spite of what it's gonna cost me with my time and my opportunities, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to stay alive. It contributes to our inability to routinely teach and practice dying well. And I don't know who needs to hear this or whatever, or this is something you play at a later date and, or somebody is going through some of this, whatever. But listen, God is glorified when people die having lived a full life, accepting his plan, hoping for continued life in Christ and trusting God to care for them in their journey from this life to the next. He's absolutely glorified in that. A death that doesn't afford the opportunity for last words, for reconciliation, for repentance, and for spiritual preparation because of naive vitalism, life at whatever cost, is not a good death. It's not a good death. And I wonder if in the picture that we showed earlier of the Ars Morandi, if one of those demons like, fight, 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 you got this, keep going. You just try it. There's this medical crazy procedure. It's only in Germany. You got to fly. You got to do this. And you're like, for what? Like, I'm not choosing. I'm not like choosing to die, but I'm also like awareness. Pretty good life. Pretty good. I've got kids. I've got grandkids. I've got friends. I've got people to say goodbye to. Do I want to spend every last waking moment and every last dollar chasing something down? Or can I come to grips with an awareness of a God who has gifted me the gift of life and have done a pretty dang good job living it. And I believe that life is a common, not a period. I believe that death is not an end, but a transition, that there's a reality beyond even death and that what I know and believe about the future ought to shape how I live in the present. So therefore, I'm gonna choose to die well. I'm gonna choose to die well. Look at the whole passage. We're gonna, I'm closing with this right now. Look at the whole passage that I pulled from Timothy. Because we often pull that verse. I said, you go to a funeral, they're like, I fought the good fight. I lived the good thing, right? Listen to the whole passage of this as we close. Chapter one, verse six through eight. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. I, Paul. And the time for my departure is near. I know it. I'm not even trying to fight it. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing.
This is somebody who gets it, who understands it. He's not saying this to parents of 12-year-olds going through something. That's a different verse. That's a different aggressive tactic altogether. There's so much potential there. Paul is reflecting on it and goes, I, have, I had potential. I tried to live it to the best of my potential. I recognize that life is a gift and I've done my best with the gift that I've been given and I've poured it out and I'm leaving nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving it all out on the field. I've done everything that I can. And God, I'm choosing this. I'm not even, I'm not rejecting this. I'm just, I'm accepting this. And I'm taking the last few moments of my life to pen something to my apprentice, to work through some last minute conversations that I need to have with the people that I love who are gonna take this on after me and carry on my legacy. So I'm taking this this moment not to say, Timothy, quick favor, could you ask so-and-so for a favor to talk to the guards or talk to somebody to get me out of this thing so I can keep going? Nah, man, I've accepted this. This is where I'm at. I know it. And this is a prime opportunity for me to have serious conversations about mortality so that you will understand it better. Because when you understand it better, you'll live better. You'll value things differently. Your priorities will be different. It will shape how you handle your finances, how you handle your vacation time, how you handle uh, your friends and your kids. It'll handle all of that stuff differently. And your faith, if it's not informing your life and causing you to live differently, then what is it? Then what is it anyways? It should. And I feel an obligation to remind you of that. On a Sunday that you're gonna spend the rest of the day out of the boat races and you're gonna have some fun. So on that note, let's pray. Father, As hard as this is to hear and to process, and especially, my gosh, for any of us who might be uh, not dealing with this theoretically, but like dealing with this in phone conversations and emails and in-person visitations and watching this slowly begin to affect people that we love, may we see it and remind ourselves uh, of the gift that is life and the context at which it sets for us and the the value of conversation that we get to have and, and the, the relationships and how that influences all of those things. Let us remind ourselves daily that we hold on to this true hope that we believe is true. That's not just unbased. We base it on the fact that we saw Jesus die and, and resurrect and say something about having an inheritance of, of that for us. And so we live in a way that says that life is a comma, it's not a period. And we pray that you would help us ingrain that into our minds, make that shape what we do, how we value things, the conversations that we, that, we, that we find ourselves having and how we treat others, especially those that we love. Give us wisdom to navigate this and the courage to do something about it in your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com or better yet download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.